Assange? No, I certainly would not be manipulated by this guy. After all, I had more important things to do. I had to take care of real torture victims. Nils Melzer is the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. But when he was asked to take on the case of Julian Assange back in 2018, he found himself hit with what he called almost reflexive feelings of rejection. I immediately had this image popping up of, oh, isn't this this, this guy with the white hair and the black leather jacket, this coward that's hiding in an embassy? For Melzer back then, it was hard to imagine that Assange's years in the Ecuadorian embassy in London could merit UN involvement. Like many of us in the public, he had lost the thread of Assange and his organization WikiLeaks, the publisher of the biggest military leak in U.S. history. But the subjects of those leaks, governments like the U.S. and the U.K., didn't forget Assange. And they've spent over a decade pursuing him. For now, Assange is meant to be extradited to the U.S. by the U.K. to face charges of espionage. And the legal cards he has to play are running out. So today we're talking to Melzer about why he's asking us all to take another look at the trial of Julian Assange. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. It's been more than a decade since the height of Assange's influence through WikiLeaks. But that time is worth revisiting. Julian, welcome. It's been reported that WikiLeaks, your baby, has, um, in the last few years, has released more classified documents than the rest of the world's media combined. Can, can that possibly be true? Yeah, can it possibly be true? It's a worry, isn't it? That the rest of the world's media is doing such a bad job that a little group of activists is able to release more of that type of information than the rest of the world press combined. Those claims are from Julian Assange at a TED Talk in July 2010. WikiLeaks had just published a classified military video it called Collateral Murder. I just drove over a body. (laughs) What you just heard is, I think I just drove over a body. In the video, U.S. soldiers in Baghdad are seen firing on and mocking a group of alleged armed fighters, which turned out to include civilians and journalists. Oh yeah, look at those dead bastards. Nice. Soon after that TED Talk, WikiLeaks released 90,000 documents from the war in Afghanistan, followed by the leaked U.S. diplomatic cables. Those eventually numbered more than 3 million and spanned a period of four decades. But one allegation after another would come to cloud that narrative of Assange, the liberator of state secrets. The rape allegations in Sweden that drove him to seek asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy, the behavior in that embassy that allegedly got him expelled, and the leaks in the 2016 U.S. election that many blamed for the election of Donald Trump. As part of his investigation, Melzer looked into them all. He's published them in a book called The Trial of Julian Assange, coming out in February. The more I scratched the surface of this kind of public narrative that had been created about Julian Assange, 
the more dirt came up and the the dirt I found was really on the side of the states and not on the side of, of Assad. And that really pulled me into the case. From the rape allegations, through treason, through being a Russian asset and having helped Trump into the office, or that he his publications harmed U.S. personnel in operational areas. All of these claims I've investigated, and I, I can assert there is no evidence for any of them. <laughs> And that is really the most shocking thing that we all presume, and I did, I'm not even blaming people who believe all these things because I believe them and as a human rights expert declined to get into his case because I was absolutely certain that all of these things were true. But, you know, the level to which we are deceived in this case is just staggering. So after you got involved with Assange's case in 2019, you were in communication with the British authorities. Tell us what happened. So on the 8th of April, he was still at the embassy at the time. I um, I contacted the British and the Ecuadorian governments and announced my intention to visit Julian Assange in the embassy. And I asked them to freeze the situation, not to expel him from the embassy for two weeks so I could visit him and investigate the case on behalf of the United Nations. Now, what was striking, though, is that on the 8th of April, I announced my visit. On the 10th of April, I received a response from the British ambassador in Geneva, acknowledging the reception of my letter and and saying that, yes, of course, you know, you can visit Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy if the Ecuadorian uh, embassy agrees. But they refused to engage with me in a discussion about a potential expulsion of Julian Assange, saying that this was a completely speculative scenario and that they would not engage in a discussion on speculative scenarios with me. But within 24 hours, Julian Assange was expelled and arrested by the British police. After an almost seven-year standoff holding international law enforcement at bay, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is under arrest. Julian Assange, now with a beard, carried out of the Ecuadorian embassy by London's Metropolitan Police. I think I might have even accelerated the process. The fact that I announced my intention to to visit Julian Assange and to investigate the case, I believe this might have accelerated his expulsion because three days later, he was actually, on the 11th of April, he was then expelled from the embassy without any due process, without any proceeding that would you know, be required when you deprive someone of asylum and even of the Ecuadorian citizenship in, in this case. And this was such a complex operation that for sure the British knew about this when they basically lied to me in writing, saying that this was completely speculative. In Ecuador, the political situation had changed, and the new president, Lenin Moreno, said that Assange had violated the conditions of his asylum with Ecuador. But by then, Assange had been granted Ecuadorian citizenship along with asylum, and that citizenship was suspended without due process. Then, Assange was imprisoned in the UK, and the US unveiled its indictment against him that had long been kept secret. It took about a month for Melzer to arrange a visit at the Belmarsh Prison in London. And as a UN official, he was surprised by the reception he got there. Belmarsh, I, I, <laughs> no one was waiting for us at the entrance. 
I mean, it took us an hour to just get through the security check. And we arrived clearly late inside the prison. And then they didn't want to grant us initially an interview without witness, which is a standard condition for my prison visits. So what I'm trying to say is that every single step was made difficult. Um, I wanted to meet also with the medical doctors of the prison, which I had announced before my visit. I had announced them coming with the medical team. Mm -hmm. But the British authorities then said, well, you know, today there is no doctor in the prison, Mm -hmm. basically. So in a high security prison with a thousand inmates in Britain, in London, of course there is a doctor. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you know, that's not realistic. They knew you were coming, though. I I just want to make our, our audience clear. They knew you were coming. Of course. No, this was an authorized visit. It was authorized by the Ministry of Justice. And it's a diplomatic relation that Britain has with the United Nations. And so a certain protocol has to be respected. And, you know, the British are very aware of protocol. So uh, so this was not a coincidence. It was a clear messaging that they were tolerating my visit, but they had no intentions to be influenced by the assessment I was making. Right. After all of that, Assange is brought into the room for you to interview. What was his state of mind that first time that you visited him? He was, uh, he reminded me very, actually immediately, of political prisoners I had visited around the world, uh, intellectuals who had spent a long time in, in isolation. It's just, it's almost something intuitive you feel that, and, and the behavior he was stressed, clearly. It was difficult for me to actually get a structured discussion with him. As, you know, when I visit prisoners, I have to go through a list of questions. You know, how big is your cell? How many times a day do you get your food? What kind of food? Do you have access to medical doctors? Do you have access to your lawyer? All these kind of standard questions that I have to go through initially. It, it took me a long time to get through this list because every time I asked a question, Julian Assange would, would respond, but then expand and and go off in a different direction, discussing the basic human rights policy of the United Nations or something like this. And very, his kind of very fixated thoughts that you would find with isolation prisoners that, that have spent too much time alone, where the thoughts are spinning in circles because they're just locked in uh, and isolated. Melzer also said the doctors who visited with him found symptoms consistent with psychological torture and post-traumatic stress disorder. And Assange had great concerns about his future. He was fearful about the prospect of a maximum security prison in the United States. The prison he was already in was once referred to as Britain's Guantanamo. In a supermax prison in the U.S., home to the likes of the Unabomber and El Chapo, head of the Sinaloa drug cartel, the conditions would be even worse. He also told me when I visited him that he would not be extradited to the U.S. alive. And that this was just uh, the last resort, basically, to to escape um, a life um, in total isolation in a supermax prison. Wow. He did not expect any form of, of fair trial in the U.S. What I saw is really a man who had spent six years locked into an embassy under constant threat, constantly under pressure from the most powerful country in the world. Mm. And But in a somehow underhanded way, because the indictment against him was secret. 
And I think that's very important that we see the kind of background story. And lo and behold, he was always told he's paranoid that the U.S. is not going to prosecute him. And he always said, the moment I, I leave the embassy, they will want to extradite me. And he was right. And that's exactly what happened. The hour he was expelled from the embassy, the U.S. transmitted its extradition request and published its secret indictment against him. So he, he, he was right all along. So what was in the secret indictment? When the grand jury first unsealed the indictment against him that day in 2019, it contained a single charge, one count of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. Since then, the charges have expanded to 17 additional counts under the Espionage Act. And pursuing Assange for espionage creates a legal precedent for other publishers of state secrets as well. But we'll get back to that. Melzer wrapped up his investigation without fanfare. And the response from the U.S., as has been the line throughout the recent years of the Assange case, was no comment. I had found clear evidence of torture and clear evidence of grave due process violations. And I had the evidence for that, but states simply ignored it. And I faced this wall of silence, even with the established media. No one wanted to hear the story, really. So throughout all of this, Assange's case wound through the UK legal system, and it has ended for the moment with a ruling that he can be extradited to the United States. And I actually don't want to focus on that decision, the one that reversed the denial of the extradition, but I want to focus on the moment where the extradition was denied in the first place, because it seems like it was straight out of a courtroom drama. Can you tell me what happened? Yes, I mean, this had been a drama building up. Anyone who observed those hearings um, could not escape the impression that the judge was enormously biased against Assange, you know, prevented very important evidence from being used and obviously misinterpreted applicable treaties. I mean, it was grotesque. For legal observers like Melzer, it was clear which way the ruling was going. The judge accepted the criminal accusations against Assange. She accepted that his actions would be crimes in the UK as well as the US, a condition for extradition. And she ruled that the UK's ban on extradition for political crimes did not apply. Basically, step-by-step step confirmed every single argument the US had raised. And all the observers in that hearing, you know, they were tweeting as the judge spoke and said, you know, this is bad. It's just what we expected. She's going to extradite him. She's confirming every single point. And then all of a sudden, I observed this on my screen. I was not at the hearing at home through, through the, the, the Twitter feeds. And all of a sudden, I saw this capital letters, oh, my God. <laughs> and then extradition refused. Mm -hmm. And then it was like a, a meteorite had struck what happened, you know. <laughs> And uh, it then materialized that the judge had argued that, yes, extradition was permissible in law, but that Julian Assange's state of health was so frail and that his mental health was so unstable 
that the harsh, the exceptionally harsh conditions in a supermax prison in the US under special administrative measures would almost certainly lead him to commit suicide and that therefore his extradition would be oppressive and he could not be extradited, end of the story. Britain blocks extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Now, the UK has blocked efforts to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the United States to face espionage charges. The Committee to Protect Journalists has welcomed the British court's decision to block Assange's extradition and is urging the US Department of Justice to drop all charges against him. It was celebrated by the Assange supporters in front of the courthouse and worldwide. And I immediately had a very bad feeling about this mm. because I could see then, well, I, I'm a lawyer and I know that an extradition proceeding goes through several stages. Both sides knew that in, in any case, whatever the, the judge decides, the losing side will appeal to the high court. As Melzer explains, whichever side lost in this ruling was going to appeal to a higher court. And it's the losing side that chooses the complaints, the ones that will be taken up by the court. If Assange had lost, everything would have been on the table for appeal. But he won. By confirming the U.S. legal indictments against Assange, but by not extraditing for medical reasons and by claiming that the conditions of detention in the U.S. are inhumane, the judge basically pushed the ball into the field of the Americans, of the U.S., and so the U.S. simply made guarantees that we will treat him well, and on this basis, we will remove that concern. And that's what led to the extradition going forward at the next appeal, though we're still not near a final decision. Meanwhile, all the other issues that go beyond Assange, press freedom, torture, illegal surveillance, due process violations, for now, those legal issues are closed. It's worth mentioning here about the assurances that the U.S. made. It also reserved the right to change them later. And while it's also assured that Assange could serve any sentence in Australia, where he's from, that's for the final sentence. His detention before and during the trial, which could take years, would be in the United States. And that's the type of guarantees that the U.S. have given. It's basically window dressing, that, but they don't really tie uh, the hands of the U.S. They can still isolate him for the rest of his life. What this does is that it prolongs the legal proceeding potentially by another couple of years. And the question is whether Julian Assange will survive it because he is in, in a high-security prison in very difficult conditions of detention. And I have to emphasize they're illegal because he is not serving a sentence. I can just point out that another prominent case who was in extradition detention in the UK was Augusto Pinochet, the former dictator of Chile. And he was accused of real crimes against humanity, murder, torture in thousands of cases in Switzerland, France, and Belgium, and, and Spain. And they wanted his extradition, and the UK then detained him, but they put him in house arrest in a luxurious villa where he had, you know, free access to visitors and the public. So completely different conditions of life. And there is no reason, you know, to imprison someone like Julian Assange, except if they pursued other uh, purposes with that detention. And I believe that to be the case. They want to break him, drive him to suicide, and certainly silence him prevent him from using the public to support him. 
So finally, I want to talk about why this case is such an issue for press freedom. Regardless of the debate over whether Julian Assange is a journalist, everyone can agree he is a publisher of information, as you say in the book. The Espionage Act and the State Secret Act have no provision for information that's in the public interest. So if a publisher of information like Assange can be charged under these acts, what does it mean for the future? Well, it means that anyone can be charged under the Espionage Act. It sets a precedent by which anyone, any uh, U.S. citizen, but also any uh, foreign citizen who discloses classified information of the U.S. government, even if it provides evidence for serious crimes by government officials, that this uh, constitutes a crime and can potentially bring you, you know, behind bars for the rest of your life. That certainly has a chilling effect. If I asked you as a journalist today, if I gave you a USB stick with the next 250,000 diplomatic cables, would you publish them? Ten years ago, you might have given a different answer. Today, you will probably certainly think about it. Right. And look at what's happening to Assange. And this is what I'd like to explain to people. This is what was intended with this and what is intended with his prosecution. It is not about will he be extradited in the end or not. It is about making sure that no one follows his example because that's what states are afraid of. So it's about intimidation. It's a demonstration of power to the public and to journalists worldwide. If you ever come to the idea that you want to publish our dirty secrets, this is what we're going to do to you. We're going to violate your rights gravely in broad daylight and no one will be able to protect you. I think it really should send chills down our spines. This is not about whether you like Julian Assange or not. It's about whether you like your right to know what your government is doing with your tax money and the power you have delegated to them. If you are no longer allowed to ask questions as to the lawfulness of what governments are doing, if this becomes espionage, then we're no longer living in a democracy. And I think it is as grave as that. The Assange case is not about Assange, it is about our rights. Nils Melzer, the book is called The Trial of Julian Assange. Thank you so much for walking us through this and sharing why it is so important. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Amy Walters, Nikin Oliay, Priyanka Tilve, Ruby Zaman, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Benton is our editor. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back on Friday.